Hi, this is Liz Lawler on. Hi, Liz. This is uh, Adrian Fish. Hello. Hello. This is Anne. Yes, it is. Hi. Yes, it is. Hi, Sensei. Oh, hi, Sensei. Don in Wichita. How are you, Don? Good. We're a few minutes early. Uh, I'm wondering if there's any uh, uh, other participants that other participants that you expect uh, might be joining us tonight. Anyone? Uh, this dawn, uh, I was thought Dell was going to show up, but that wouldn't be online. That would just be uh, here in the office. So uh, I didn't expect anyone else uh, electronically. Okay. Okay. Well, maybe perhaps we are set to go. Uh, does that sound uh, like something you'd like to do uh, at this point, or would you like to wait a few more minutes? Is uh, Jim Smith on? He was coming, right? I'm seeing several unknown numbers connecting. I don't have anyone who's a connection to me. Uh, who seems to be online that has indicated that they want to join. Uh, I don't see I don't see Teshin online quite yet. Okay, well, you know, I'm ready when anyone is. Okay, are you recording these, Sensei? Yes, I am. Okay, then. I'm not breaking up, am I? Not at all. It's crystal clear. It's okay, perfect. Good. So we'll keep recording. Excellent. Okay, uh, Don, I, I guess uh, I, I'm not usually um, the uh, host of these uh, particular uh, this particular group for uh, in terms of the conference call on Skype. So uh, perhaps you would like to uh, take the reins and uh, direct our uh, our discussion tonight. Yeah, I'll I'll do my best. I'm turning to. Um, we suggested. Um, <clears throat> Chapter three in realizing Genjo Koan, um, Okamuro's translation, of course. And I will say, uh, Harold has joined us, and I believe Dell is coming in. So there are three of us here in Wichita. Uh, yeah, I think uh, we knew about this ahead of time, and. Uh, I would say maybe we should start out with comments or questions, uh, at least loosely related to the uh, topic. And uh, I think Sensei can probably um, assume that uh, everyone has read this recently, or at least sometime. Uh, with Sensei, uh, frequently we start out with you making a few comments. Uh, if you would like to do that, 
And if not, uh, we could see if there are any questions. And if there are no questions forthcoming, then uh, maybe we should just dive into reading and, and read a little bit and see if that raises any questions. Is that a good way to proceed? Well, in this case, I think I would defer making any comment because this is such a um, um, compelling teaching on the part of Dogen and, and, and such a, an insightful commentary on uh, Okamuroshi's part that I would, f I would be, be like putting a head on top of a head for me to say anything else. But I, and also, I would expect that those who have read through this, because it is as uh, compelling as it is, that something might have already stood out for everybody. So I don't want to, you know, preempt anything or anticipate anything. But I would, I would uh, ask that before we delve into reading that presuming that everybody has read this, that you would just kind of go around and ask everybody if they have any questions or something that has stood out for them that has come up, because um, there's just a lot in here, and there's certainly areas that I would point to myself if they don't come up, but let's start with it. That's what I would suggest is what we usually do. And then okay. once, once we go around, around the room, so to speak, and we're going around the country here, <laughs> going, around uh, the, uh. going around the continent, uh, which I don't know if Dogen would ever have conceived of this, but nonetheless, then I think uh, we could go into into uh, you know taking turns reading. I see. Uh, uh, Jim has joined us. Is that right? Uh, yes. Yeah, we're uh, we're in the. Uh, Chapter three of uh, realizing Genjo Khan, and we're going to uh, go around uh, and see if people have questions or comments about the text. Uh, it's uh, beginning about page twenty-three, and and uh, goes on quite a bit. There's quite a bit in this chapter. We probably, I probably made it a little too broad, but uh, we'll just deal with that. I think I'll start with uh, uh, Dell. <laughs> Frequently, uh, she does have a question or comment, and uh, if that's all right, we'll just start with Dell to see what she has, if anything. Okay. Good evening. I confess that I have only read to uh, page 28, the first Dharma Seal. And my comment would be, I am always so pleased to get a uh, analogy that I can really put my, uh, uh, wrap my brain around. And the river, the Mississippi River, uh, always does that for me. And when it's time for Sensei's comments, uh, anything he would like to add, to uh, that description, which is on page 27, uh, that uh, I would appreciate that. Okay, and I think Dell's uh, referring to page 27. There is a paragraph, and I do see the um, comment that the water 
of a river is flowing and different, so it is constantly changing, but there's still a, a certain continuity of the river as a whole. What was the description uh, that Dell was referring Description of what, Dell? Uh, yeah, um, basically, um, he talks about the Mississippi River. Oh, okay. And how okay. Just, yeah. And uh, um, I guess if I have a question related at all to that, uh, it would be that um, it seems that he talks to uh, Mississippi River is simply a name to various conditions and changing elements and relates that to how our, that our lives are just a collection of conditions and how my question is that Zazen helps us to see some of the things that are below the surface of the river of our life. That's not formed as a question, but that's my thought which is questioning. Yeah, um, so let me re sort of repeat back to you. Zazen allows us to see a form which is beyond our life, did you say? Something like that, but there are sandbars uh, under the river, okay? Right. And sometimes those sandbars shift and I am thinking as I read that, that at my age, the sandbars have, uh, and the logs that are stuck in the bottom of the river of my life huh, have been moved along. And one of the reasons I sit in Zazen is to have some sense of what's going on under the surface of my life, how I present myself to the world. Yeah. Well, I guess the, the problem that I would have here, and uh, maybe it's just semantics, but is the word just. That, uh, you know, the Mississippi River is just a collection of, and, and our lives are also just a collection of, well, these are not just uh, causes and conditions, they're determinate, determinative uh, causes and conditions. And, and they basically create the karma and you might say the dharma, you know, that we have to deal with. This is why in the repentance and refuges, all my past are harmful karma, uh, beginning with greed, hate, and delusion, born of this body, mouth, and mind. We cannot be casual uh, or dismissive or cavalier, you know, about the fact of our uh, karmic consciousness. And, and uh, this is certainly not uh, Roshi's intent in, in using and in, in phrasing it this way. What he's saying is that even the mighty Mississippi River, you know, when we look at it, it is so... Uh, what would you call it? It's it's like the Rio Grande, you know. You look at the Rio the, the Rio Grande Canyon. It's just awe-inspiring, and yet, in a sense, it reduces down to some very simple processes which continue uh, throughout time over a long period of time. 
And notice in here, you'll notice that he he continues to uh, refer to uh, Dogen's uh, discussion of uh, how the Gendra Koan is, is speaking of our reality in in time and how how we are moving through time or it is moving through us you may say so I would be uh, just a little cautious I would, I would caution us to not sort of uh, take a flippant flippant view of our the causes and conditions of our lives as being just just this or just that in fact they're exactly the Dharma and the karma you know that we 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 are confronted with so we cannot escape uh, in any facile way we cannot escape the causes and conditions of our existence they are the grist to the mill you might say they are the they are the um, ingredients that we have to work with so I think what he's pointing at is this uh, the fact when we look at uh, the Mississippi River we think of it as this entity this this thing that we call in a sense casually or cavalierly we call it the the Mississippi River as if we know what it is but when we begin to examine it we begin to see that as he says in Minnesota in Minnesota it's just a little you know uh, uh, the, the what do they call it the headwaters where they begin uh, and then it grows and grows and grows as it approaches Louisiana and New Orleans and dumps out into the Gulf there it's just it's incredible uh, incredible um, powerhouse uh, it's it's so wide that I think from one side of it you can't even see the other side uh, so it's a little bit like it reminds me a little bit of Dogen's saying that the awakening or realization can be likened to a firefly this the startup of realization something soft and flickering something so small so insignificant and subtle you might not you might not even notice it but then that it grows and grows and grows until it's like a firestorm that rages throughout the universe burning in a sense you know burning everything in its path so the the metaphor of the Mississippi River that he's or the way he's using the Mississippi River here uh, remember the point that he's making just before that um, something within us which does not change this is this idea of a soul or a self or that we can be a Buddhist or we can be a Christian or there is something that we call a, an American or a, West, a Westerner this self-identity is some kind of fixed notion this is why you know we have a very difficult time claiming to be a Buddhist you know and, and uh, if you say you're a Buddhist the other person has to be a Christian or whatever else they are and so you have just reinforced the same you you have you have unintentionally reinforced this same 
ignorance, you might say, or lack of wisdom. Uh, he quotes here, um, if there were no unchanging essential existence, does that mean I would not be responsible and so forth? And would be a different person. Uh, we have no unchanging Atman or ex as a essential existence. The fact that our essential existence or essence is ever-changing does not relieve us of responsibility for our behavior. Everything in nature is like this. The Mississippi River and everything else is uh, ever-changing. So this does not relieve us of any moral responsibility at all. It's just the it's a condition of the nature of existence. So, Dell, I'm not quite sure I'm addressing what you're asking, but where he goes, what we call the self is just a set of conditions. Uh, so I cannot say there's an unchanging self uh, that exists throughout my life and so forth. Uh, but that does not relieve us of the consequences of our behavior both in terms of its effect on other people and it's also in, in terms of its effect on our own understanding. So uh, this idea that this so-called self uh, is not a fixed entity but is an ever-changing entity does not change the fact that in its activities it creates karmic consequences. Just as the Mississippi River, I mean, look what it does when it floods. Or look what it does when it changes directions. You know, the Mississippi River uh, has, has not stayed in the same channel uh, over its existence. I mean, you can, go, you can Google this and find different, different um, images that show how it's, it's, it's changed its path over, over the centuries and over probably eons. I'm not sure if the, how far back they can go, but a river uh, will wear down the terrain to a certain point, and then if there's a period of intense rain, flooding, and so forth, it will actually change. The riverbed will change, and will, it will move somewhere else. And this is why all the levees and dams and so forth have been put along the Mississippi River as attempts to control it, to keep it from destroying the uh, the villages and, and towns and cities that grew up alongside it for commercial reasons, uh, the river doesn't care about that. You know, the river uh, the river will do just whatever it's going to do, and it will water will seek its own level and so forth. So um, mankind's uh, attempt to control the river is, in a sense, trying to keep it in the same place, trying to trying to make it have the same form. But the, the river will not cooperate in that. And similarly, the self, the so-called so self, we're trying to keep the self in the same familiar and comfortable form that we think it is, and it, it will not cooperate in that. The self is ever-changing, and uh, it is out of our control. The human body is not something that we control, and the human body and the self are clearly, you know, uh, tied together. We don't have any self in Buddhism that is independent of this existence, like a self-existent soul that somehow stays the same even though 
our body and our life and everything is changing. So this, I think, is one of the points he's making here is the so-called Mississippi River. There is no such thing. There is no such independent self of the Mississippi River that somehow keeps the same form and is the same thing. It's ever-changing. And in fact, the causes and conditions that make it change are not anything that you could call the Mississippi River. It's the rain, it's the terrain, it's the, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's engaged and interconnected with uh, the atmosphere, with the terrain of the earth, with the changes of the seasons, and with the earth, warming of the earth, war climate change, if that if that's if we accept that that's what's happening, uh, th there it's possible that at some point in the future the Mississippi River will be completely dried up and there will be no water at all. It will be a a dry uh, riverbed, an arroyo or a canyon like the uh, like the Grand Canyon. So I, I, it's a very powerful uh, parallel that he's drawing here for us. That's the way. It, am I? Does that make any sense? To, am I even coming close to what you're asking? No. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you. I I appreciate it. Any uh, follow-up questions on that uh, from anyone or comments? Uh, I'll just uh, see, did, did uh, and um, does anybody have another portion that they have a question about or a comment about? And if not, I'll, I'll just uh, call on people as we do, <laughs> as the teachers used to do, so. And again, practice questions uh, are always appropriate. Uh, there almost isn't any practice question that couldn't be appropriate to this chapter, fortunately. That's Anyone? For, that's for sure. Uh, Jim, uh, do you have any um, questions or comments? Uh, no, Don, not at this point in time. Thank you. Okay, and uh, Adrian? Um. Well, I uh, was listening carefully uh, to what Sensei was saying, and the uh, um, thing that uh, I, I guess I was thinking about is uh, through some of the other studying that I'm doing uh, that is not necessarily Zen-related, but more about um, related to the science of, of symbols and signs and reading our reading of symbols and signs called semiotics, uh, where where the breakdown becomes very very Buddhist in that way, where the the sense of uh, uh, conventions essentially what it what it refers to is the fact that that uh, we we very deeply confuse we have a very deep confusion between our um, sign for things and what the things really are, and we tend we tend to believe in the uh, kind of uh, I don't know if I can think of a better word other than selfhood, but the, the, the permanence or the the um, concreteness not no that's the wrong word but the, the the permanence of things or the I mean even the most basic thing I mean you can use an example like the, the Buddha is traditionally used had had used the example of the ox card where uh, we he points out that the 
um, what we call an ox cart is really nothing more than uh, uh, a bunch of, of components that are assembled in a particular way at a particular time under a particular set of conditions. And the convention we use, the word we use, ox cart, and the thing that seems so so real and so permanent is really just is really just um, um, an assemblage of, of um, other things that they that themselves are only temporarily put together in a particular way. So in that way, he draws a parallel to this to the idea of anatman or no self. So uh, that's that's how I think of it, and and. Uh, uh, it's easy to say, it's easy to think of it intellectually and, and grasp and understand, uh, but it's another thing to really, really understand that and to act it. So, you know, I uh, don't, uh, I think that's a whole other level of practice that, of course, we're all, we're all uh, working, working at. Yeah, I'm not sure that we can really act on that at all. Uh, I know, um, I'm not picking on your words here, um, Chico-san. But uh, when you uh, come to that realization that everything is like this, including your so-called self, then I think it brings about a sense of a kind of cognitive dissonance or a sense of wonder, a sense of, um, you know, perched on the 100-foot pole or you know, stepping off the abyss or something. It's everything that you had uh, thought you know, you could rely on everything that you thought was real as a child and growing up and so forth. Turns out not to be, not to be dependable, uh, not to be real. And so you're kind of left hanging, hanging, you know. And uh, so I, I, I think that's a necessary state of confusion, or necessary state, you may say, of cognitive dissonance that has to come about uh, before uh, any kind of um, insight uh, can can set into place. So you might say that's the disintegrative, that's the dis that's the disintegration of personality or the personality disintegration that we intentionally go through in Zen, but it's not yet the reintegration of personality. Into in a, in a different way, or, or in, in a on a more substantial basis. And when I say more substantial, you know, all these words need quotes around them because whatever it's built back up on cannot be called substantial anymore. As Dogen says elsewhere, it's unconstructedness and stillness. So it is um, beyond the usual definitions that we have for these words. But nonetheless, we can think of it as a process. We can we can we can focus on the process. So we can understand that the process that we must go through and that we will go through is one of a kind of disintegration, a kind of falling apart of our of our reality as we have known it and as we have learned it, and as other people have taught us, and as other people have insisted it is, and so forth. Uh, including the soul, self, Atman, and so forth. But uh, the logical extensions of that concrete sort of idea, and I'm saying it's a concrete idea, it's not, it's not the concrete reality. It's a, it's a way we have of projecting a hopeful, you might say a hopeful reality, onto, onto actual concrete existence. 
when that begins to disintegrate and fall away, it's very, very cherry. It's very uh, uh, scary. You know, it's very um, anxiety-producing, uh, you might say. But uh, it, it finally, I think, cures us of our fundamental anxiety that we can go all the way, jump off the cliff, jump into the abyss, go all the way to the bottom of the pit. Uh, all the teachers have expressed it this way from different disciplines. So that once we, once we have made that effort, once we have gone through that process, and when it comes back together, we know for sure, in a, in a sense we don't know, but we know for sure what we need to know, and we have more what Matsuoka Roshi referred to as a spiritual confidence. We have spiritual confidence. So I think the idea that uh, this there, there's so, and I hate to say this, but because Dogen and others have all denied this, but that in a sense there, there are some stages to this process, and what we get, where we get confused in our words, I think, is to say that if, for instance, we reach a certain level of equanimity, that this is the, this is enlightenment. But we have to recognize that whatever we can recognize in that sense has got to be very preliminary. And so whatever it is that is the so-called ultimate or final stage, the fundamental or the turning about inmost consciousness, the uh, anatara samyak sambodhi, uh, complete insight, has got to be something which has been preceded by many different levels of insight and understanding. And I think um, Okamura Roshi here is very brilliant at helping us to understand uh, some of the preliminary things that we have to divest ourselves of, the concepts and ideas that we have to disabuse ourselves of in order that this natural process of then uh, sinking deeper into what you might call the unknown or the don't know mind, you know, then then begins to proceed. And I hope I didn't take that too far afield, Adrian. Um, no, I don't think so. Uh, I I just the only addendum I might just add to what I said before is is um, as we we all experience as in is uh, not something. Uh, graspable, understandable. You know, it doesn't work in ways that other things we we believe we we, we deal in work. Um, so, so the most important thing, as far as I'm concerned, is to really just just continue to continue the practice, um, and uh, nothing more. Yep, I think so. Any follow up? What? Oh, excuse me. I was just going to say if there's any follow up questions or comments, but I see Sensei does have a follow-up comment. <laughs> no, I think that was just it. It's uh, Ours is a process-oriented method. Uh, we, it, it's, it's not a cop-out to say that, you know, just sit. Uh, in a sense, that is the ultimate truth, that no matter what level of understanding we think we've accomplished, no matter what level of confusion we find ourselves in. Uh, 
you know that we as Adrian said we we do just continue so it, it's not a flip remark you know uh, on, on our part it's not a flip remark to say something like that but it is uh, basically the kind of the final resolution of a lot of these questions and dilemmas is that just just to continue Okay, anything else on this um, in this train or I'm going to move on to another person if not. Uh, and do you have any comments about the uh, section or what we've talked about already or anything else? Um, I, I do keep reading this chapter over and I know I have a question, but I think it's going to take me a long time to have a clear question. So, you want me to come back to you in a little while? Oh, I mean, really long time. No, I'll just keep listening. <laughs> I just, I'm going to, yeah, it's a very good question. I appreciate Sensei's comments. Thank you. Is Bob uh, with us? Uh, he's doing errands right now. Ah, okay. <laughs> yeah, just me. Okay. Then I'll move um I'll move on to Liz. Any comments or questions? Well my my question I think is more one of um just technical. Um when he gets into the section where he's talking about the other schools or philosophical points. Um, of uh, the the um, it starts on page thirty one with when the ten thousand dharmas are without fixed self, and I I guess my question as I was reading this I I don't know that much about the other teachings that he's talking about, and my question would be how much of that background is necessarily is necessary to truly understand and is is the reading of dogen enough um so to speak to really understand what dogen is saying or you figure dogen is using all those other previous teachings um and it just seems a little confusing and perhaps overwhelming to to be able to to get all the teachings. Well, let me speak to that a little bit. Um, I think it's true. I think we all understand that Buddha, the story of Buddha, at least if we if we accept its basic. Uh, historicity and the basic premises of what happened there is he had this profound experience and this this experience that he had uh, according to this most central doctrine of Buddhism is is accessible to all of us who are human beings chickens dogs cats and cows <laughs> not so much as I always say but you know for us uh, especially Zen uh, Buddhism. The whole point is, you know, why would we be, why would we be interested in hearing uh, 
other people recite the uh, Alpha and Omega of the truth if we don't have any access to it. And frankly, this is most people's disappointment in most religions. It's it's just uh, the, other than the saints, you know, and and the Savior himself and so forth, the rest of us are just, uh, you know, chopped liver. We don't, <laughs> we, too bad, we, we're, we're not going to have that kind of insight. But in Buddhism, it's different. Um, Buddhism holds out this sort of spiritual candy that, indeed, uh, any of us uh, can aspire to and possibly have this kind of profound insight that, that Buddha had. So the second thing that he's saying, talking about here, when the 10,000 dharmas are without fixed self, there is no delusion, no realization, no Buddhas, no living beings, no birth, and no death. He is expounding, he, he's saying basically, this is the insight of Mahayana Buddhism to see into the reality and in in the context or from the perspective of given emptiness emptiness in the sense of uh, inevitable and ongoing change uh, there's no fixed self there is no fixed self so any of these ideas we have such as delusion any idea or concept we have a realization any concept of Buddha Buddhas as if there are Buddhas as tangible, and uh, a concept of living beings, a concept of birth, a concept of death. Uh, when we come at it from this more absolute or abstract, you might say, uh, perspective, then we can see that the traditional teachings of Buddhism are very contradictory to all the other philosophies and wisdoms that are taught in the world. It's saying that yes, of course, birth and death. The first, the first, the first one. When all dharmas are Buddha dharma, there is delusion and realization. Practice life and death. Buddhas and living beings. So yes, in the conventional sense, these things are all real. But the second sentence that he's speaking of here is the Buddhist insight into emptiness, the Buddhist insight into the impermanence, the insubstantiality, the, the imperfection of existence. This was Buddha's profound uh, insight, which renders all of this reality that we take for granted conventionally to be empty of self-existence. So this is this is the point he's making here. And so so come back at me, Liz, with a little more question, and then hopefully we can clarify a little more. Okay, I would be then go on to page thirty-six where he says, "This is why Dogen clarifies that form is form and emptiness is emptiness." Yep. So Liz, Liz is preempting my questions, so I'm really sitting on the edge of my seat. Go ahead. Well, uh, uh, Okamura does a, a very brilliant thing in here, I think. He, 
where he says, uh, and Okamura, uh, remember, this English is a second language for him, as it was for Matsuoka Roshi. And so you can have nothing but admiration for a person who can be this, this eloquent and this plain in a second language. Imagine if you went to Japan and you had to try to learn the language there and you were going to try to teach these extremely complex and subtle concepts and, and things beyond concept in a second language. So this is amazing to me, you know, and, and, and Matsuoka Roshi's accomplishments uh, were just amazing to me. And frankly, I think Matsuoka Roshi's accomplishments in teaching and translating are part of the reason that Okamura Roshi decided to give me the transmission ceremony. Uh, it was after he read uh, uh, the books that I sent him on Matsuoka Roshi. He said he he he. So he 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 gave these talks, right? These are all. And I said yes. And he said he said then he had to translate all this stuff. And he said not this material was not available in translation at the time. So he was very impressed with Matsuoka Roshi and his place in history. So here, Okamura, I have the same kind of admiration for Okamura Roshi. He's, he, after all, I mean, he's been here a long time, but this still, this is a second language if you think about it. So here, I've almost lost my point because I'm very, that, that that's a very important point for, for me to have made. But he is saying, um, Liz, say again what you were asking because that's where I have to cue off of. On page 36... Sorry, my mic was muted. Went on page 36, where he says, um, this is why Dogen clarifies that form is form and emptiness is emptiness. Yep. Okay, so earlier in the text, Okamura Roshi, uh, and I, I'm, I'm not going to try to find it and read it and quote it perfectly, but he says something to the effect that uh, if you say form is emptiness, emptiness is form, then you have already created a bifurcation of what is called what so-called form and emptiness into two separate entities. You might think of them as a, a ball of taffy, and I, I'm going into a different metaphor here. He doesn't say this, but if you if you took a piece of taffy and you pulled it apart, right? and it's stretching in between and over in your right hand you have this big ball and over in your left hand you have this big ball and it's stretched and contained connected together in between you're calling the one in your right hand form and the one in your left hand emptiness so what he's saying is that to say form is emptiness emptiness is form is to already separate form from emptiness and emptiness from form and yet if form is emptiness and emptiness is form it's not necessary to say that when you say form, it's already emptiness. When you say emptiness, it's already form. So Dogen goes on to make the, that is, there is no form without emptiness, and there is no emptiness without form. So to say that form is emptiness is to uh, play to the weakness of duality, that's the dualistic uh, discriminating mind, that says that they can be separated but if you say, as Dogen is, goes on to say, actu 
also form is form. Emptiness is emptiness. So he's emphasizing the concrete that there is form and yes, emptiness is form, but we still say there is form. We cannot deny there's form. And then we say emptiness, and emptiness contains, it also contains form. So this goes right to the heart of our dualistic mind, discriminating thinking, and the dualistic nature of the language. So the concrete reality in the concrete reality, you can't say anything. If you open your mouth, the Zen master punches you in the nose. So you can't really say form is emptiness, emptiness is form, nor can, nor can you say form is form, emptiness is emptiness. But when Dogen is kindly trying to explain to us that when you say form is emptiness, it's already extra. To say form is form is to say the same thing. It already includes emptiness. To say emptiness is emptiness is the same thing. It already includes form. So this gets right into the middle of our brain and starts to take apart your cognitive capability of recognizing reality. And you, we can't help but try to do it conceptually. And so we end up uh, with this kind of teaching. We're confronted with a kind of cosmic cognitive dissonance in which when we say form, we have to spit. When we say emptiness, we have to laugh. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. Follow-up questions or comments? <laughs> I missed that. Uh, Dell said we're dealing with cognitive dissonance. That's why nobody is saying anything. <laughs> Good. <laughs> <laughs> you su you've succeeded, Sensei. <laughs> Harold uh, has a, a question or comment. Sensei, I, I'd kind of like to test my understanding of this bit by building on what you said there. One of the things that Okamura does is he looks at those first three paragraphs, I guess, in the Quran, and he says the first paragraph is what the Buddha taught, and Mahayana is the second paragraph, and that's that's a, a reaction to uh, the tendency to become goal-oriented, uh, and that's the emptiness and, and the duality uh, that you that you were talking about. They wanted, they wanted to move from the not to, but but in fact, they instantiated it, and then, and then finally, Dogen came along. He said, "When you talk about emptiness, you you also talk about form. They're they're inseparable. They're 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 the same. Every everything that's form is empty. 
emptiness is is made is formed and then the question becomes what do you do with that and that's the third paragraph i think uh when you're not dealing with the intellectual understanding of it all but when you get to the point of what do you do with it at at the moment right here now and what he's saying is we live in the world that we live in and we we don't we don't immediately deal with all these conceptual uh, things going on in our mind about emptiness and so on. We maybe we've gone through that or experienced that and have integrated that. But the reality is we're living in this this world where both samsara and, and nirvana are here. And what we do here is what we, is we act. And we act on the basis of where we are and where we are is and and I think it's it's uh, that that last part and what he says is since the Buddha way by nature, and this is on 43, goes beyond a dualism of abundance and deficiency, there is a rising and perishing delusion and realization living beings and Buddha. And the point is that's where we live and that's what we do. That's where we act. Uh, that's how I understand what Okamura uh, uh, where where he's going? Yeah, well, I think he. I think I would take you back to page uh, page one, where all those those four, the one, two, three, and four are listed there, and and let's go through it again a little bit here because I would I would say that you have that you're inside your 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 um, understanding there grasping uh, part of it but let, let me let me say this that one two and three uh, kind of illustrate the relative the absolute and then the concrete and then number four I would I would argue represents the human condition okay so number three number three would not be the human condition number three would be the concrete reality to which we hope to wake up, you might say. So the first one being the relative, all things are uh, Buddha, Dharma, delusion, realization, all these things are real, in other words. And they're real in our existence in the conventional sense. And they are the things that bedevil us and, and so forth. And we have, we have some confusion over it. But then when we have this realization in number two, which is the Mahayana realization, or the we see through the five aggregates, as does um, Avalokiteshvara in the um, Heart Sutra that we chant. Sees that all five aggregates are empty, and therefore all the senses in emptiness—no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, so forth—on and on and on. Uh, within this. Uh, view, which you might say is the more absolute, the absolute, rather than the relative, you might say, uh, no fixed self in any of these things, then there is, to say, so to say, no delusion, no realization, none of these things, in other words, no birth, actually, and actually no death, in, in the absolute view. After all, the death of one is the life of another, right? I mean, beings die and they become the fertilization for 
you know, plants die and they fertilize the garden and the next plants arise and so forth. So that's the number one you could say in a very simplistic way of rendering it is the relative conventional truth. Number two is the absolute or transcendental truth. And Buddhism is well known for having promulgated this parallel track of these two truths. Then number three, where Dogen differs here, is he's now positing something that we might refer to as a concrete reality that uh, actually subsumes one and two. One and two are like yin and yang. And they are subsumed into this absolute, or not, I shouldn't use the word absolute, you used it before, but they are subsumed to this concrete reality that we are uh, called upon to uh, awaken to, which is the Buddha way. The Buddha way, the awakened way, remember Buddha only means awakened. Uh, the Buddha way by nature goes beyond this this dichotomy here it says the dichotomy of abundance and efficiency but you could say the abundancy is number one which is all these things are real and the deficiency is number two that none of these things are real uh, because the buddha way our understanding elsewhere other translations say leap aside from step aside from uh, and here, here Okamura Roshi is saying, go beyond this dichotomy or duality. Then, in the very concrete and ultimate sense, there is arising and perishing. There is delusion and realization. There are living beings and Buddhas. But the number three here is a very concrete uh, sub subsuming of number one and two into the actual reality of existence. So th these three, the first two are, are, are philosophical, are uh, number one might be Hinayana or ordinary philosophical understanding as Adrian, I think, was saying earlier, we, we actually believe in the reality of these things. Uh, you know, we subscribe to the idea that these are real and existent and tangible and so forth. Number two is this, this uh, alternate view that Buddhism brings into view, brings into, into our consciousness that, wait a minute, you know, we could be wrong, we could be wrong. Uh, we, if we closely examine, thoroughly examine in practice, as Dogen says time and time again, we begin to see that the things we think are so substantial and real are not, and this is very close to a modern view of science and physics, right? So it leaves us uh, kind of groundless. We're kind of uh, floating out there in the abyss. Uh, and then thirdly, Dogen comes back to kind of reassure us to say, but in the Buddha way, it goes beyond the dichotomy of this. Does it exist? Does it not exist? It's not about whether something is real or something isn't real. It isn't about how whether it exists or whether it doesn't exist. It's not existentialism versus materialism. 
It's more about how it exists in the most scientific way. It goes beyond this dichotomy to see that that is human conceptualization of the reality. And the concrete reality has nothing to do with our human conceptualization of it. So the third truth here, the third thing he's saying is the, the Buddhist truth, the summation of these two seemingly opposite ideas into a complementary relationship, a complementarity that expresses the true concrete nature of reality that we're sitting in. Then he goes on to say, and he uses the word therefore here, which is a very interesting choice of words. Uh, other translators don't use the word therefore as if this follows from those three things. Therefore flowers fall, even though we love them, we grow, even though we, don't, we dislike them. So this is the human condition. The human condition is to miss to misconceive and misunderstand these first three points because of our preferences. These first three points are summing up Dogen's understanding of the Buddhist reality. And the fourth point is saying, however, human beings, of course, you know, have their preferences, and so they don't get this. They don't penetrate to this depth of, of understanding. They don't penetrate to this depth of, depth of grasping the concrete reality because we prefer flowers and we don't, we don't like weeds. Right? Then he goes on to say further that in terms of method, in terms of our practice, one of the reasons we don't get this is that we're continuing to try to convey ourselves toward all things to carry out practice enlightenment. We're trying to study it and do it like we do everything else. And this is delusion. When all things come and carrying out practice uh, enlightenment through this, all things coming and carrying out practice enlightenment through the self is realiza realization. When we allow this to come to us, we take the alternative, counterintuitive uh, approach and give up our usual uh, approach to try to grasp this understanding, this then becomes realization. So this is a, this is a very, very important point that he's making right here in the beginning. First, he's laying out in three points very clearly. The, the conventional, the relative, then the absolute or the transcendental, then finally, the concrete. And then he's saying, but here's our problem as human beings. Here's, 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 how we, here's how we screw this up. Cats, dogs, chickens and cows, trees and grass, tiles and pebbles. Nothing else can get this wrong. We get it wrong. And here's how we get it wrong. We have these preferences. And then we believe that our process of study and carrying our first, conveying ourselves for us to these things is the way that we are going to grasp this uh, fundamental truth. But this is, delu this is delusion. This way cannot work. We have to stop doing that. And we have to allow all these things coming for come forth and carry out practice enlightenment through our self. They have through the self, through their selves and through our self.
different translators mm -hmm. say through uh, read the read the parallel translations. You'll see. I think it's Nisajima says uh, all things coming forth and manifesting through ourselves, which is you know pretty strange if you think about it. Then he goes on to point out that those who greatly realize delusion are Buddhas, and this is all just sort of background and sort of further further saying the same thing in a different way. Those who great who are greatly deluded in realization are living beings. So he's saying that here, you know, find yourself in this picture, and if you find yourself as a person who who are uh, greatly deluded in realization, it's because of these three first fundamental things and the way that we're approaching them. So the rest of it about being greatly deluded in realization and attain realization beyond realization, deluded within delusion, this this is just pointing out the unfortunate, the unfortunate, the unfortunate facts, you know, that people no matter how hard they try they may continue in delusion through delusion and uh, those who come to some realization can uh, the pot the good news you know is that those who come to realization can go further and further in realization of this truth so I think if we look at just those first four pieces, number one, number two, and number three is his incredibly uh, simple and condensed capsulization of the entire meaning of Buddha Dharma. Uh, putting in the context of the absolute, the relative, and the concrete. And if you look at uh, Zazen Shin, for instance, or if you look at uh, Jiju uh, Zamai, you begin to see echoes of this same teaching. And then fourthly, here's the fall from grace. In Fukan Zazenki, it's, uh, you know, when you trace the source of the way, you find it's universal and absolute, no reason to uh, distinguish between practice and enlightenment, supreme teaching is free, why study the means to attain it, the way is completely present where you are, uh, what's the use of pursuing enlightenment elf elsewhere? And then he goes, however, 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 if there is the slightest difference, in the beginning between, between you and the way, the result will be greater separation than between heaven and earth. So this is really the same thing. He's saying, this, this, and this, therefore flowers fall even though... This is the human fall from grace. Sensei, can I ask how you understand number four, that first, first sentence? He says, therefore flowers fall even though we love them, weeds grow even though we dislike them. Is that a, just a statement of fact? Flowers fall, weeds grow, or, or is he talking about attachment there as something that drives us away from... Uh, uh, is, that, is that 
loving flowers, uh, carrying out practice, uh, you know, conveying oneself towards all things. Is that, is that, does he cite that there to say that this is the way the world is? Or is he citing it there as an example of the error that we make? I don't like to use the word error, but, but the attachment that prevents us from achieving realization, I guess is what I'm saying. Is it a factual statement simply, or is it meant there, do you think, to say this is how we fail? I think it's both. You know, this is the fall from grace. Uh, we want it to be the way we want it to be. We decide that this is a flower and this is a weed. Somebody said, uh, flowers are weeds we want, weeds are flowers we don't want. Uh, <laughs> Sunday, for several, so for several weeks now, nobody's been, we had some you know, volunteers, different people from different times, uh, buying flowers and bringing them, putting them in the flower vase on the altar. Well, for several weeks that wasn't happening, and I think Terry probably put up some silk flowers on the on the <laughs> altar in the zendo. So last Sunday, I, I had I had observed this going on for some time, and I, I hesitate. I have had to stifle myself as. Uh, this guy used to say on uh, what was the show? They say stifle yourself to his wife. You know, I've had this stifle. <laughs> I've had to stifle myself uh, because if I do too many things and other people don't do them, and I take the opportunity away. But it occurred to me for several weeks now that we never had any live flowers on the uh, altar, and yet we're sitting next to this acre of basically primordial. Uh, plains here where all these wild flowers and grasses are growing. They're just beautiful. So last Sunday I went out there and we were doing some weeding and I went out and I clipped a bunch of these yellow ones which I think are goldenrod and there's some <laughs> sort of asthma, right? And some purple ones and some white ones and then there's this really grassy looking thing that I clipped so I, I started bringing these in and putting in these uh, bouquets into the uh, Zen Center. But these are not your exotic flowers imported from South America, you know. They're just the local hangout uh, regular flowers that are blossoming out there. And they're usually considered weeds. You know, they're grasses, they're weeds, and so forth. But when you clip them and you take them out of their environment, you put them in a vase, you put them on the altar, all of a sudden this so-called weed has become a beautiful flower. So I think that's what Dogen is talking about. This, the, this, this uh, fourth thing is that this is human arrogance in a way. It's the, you know, human humanity thinks they know and uh, Zen says, we don't know. The, the don't know mind in Zen is the precious, magnanimous mind. We really don't know. It's also the nurturing mind. That we don't know means that we can treat weeds the same as flowers, with the same. Now, Matsuoka Roshi talked about this in uh, a couple of his writings, which you may have read, where he talked about Whitman and the flower in the crannied wall. And if I could 
you know, know the something and all, I would know what man and God is. You know, and uh, Matsuoka Roshi pointed out that in the meantime, Whitman is plucking this flower apart, petal by petal, taking it apart in the Western scientific analytic way, killing it, destroying it, in order to try to understand it. And he contrasted this poem with a Japanese poem that said simply, there by the hedge, the Natsuna. Natsuna is this tiny little flower that you, unless you were really paying attention, you wouldn't even notice. But this poet doesn't go and cut it, you know, pull it out of the crannied wall. He doesn't cut it apart and pull the petals out to try to see what's inside. This is monkey mind peeling the onion, you know. Uh, it's just somebody said, somebody had a, a little poem said, I dedicate all the flowers of the world to all the Buddhas just as they are. Somebody else said, I have a great seashell collection. It's just, it's just <laughs> distributed around the, the beaches of the world. <laughs> <laughs> so I think this is what this is getting at. Uh, you know, uh, flowers fall even though we love them. Weeds grow even though we dislike them is our human preference. And this is based on this idea that we take the pull the petals apart we dissect the flower we dissect the frog you know rather than leaving them just in their perfect contextual interconnected environment as they are and understanding them as they are okay any um Comments or questions, especially Ann or Jim, uh, who who passed. They must not have held a very good hand because they passed. <laughs> Ann, and you might be on mute. Mute off. Um, no, no, thank you. I'm I'm fine for now. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Jim, any anything in particular? Uh, the one thing that comes to mind is um, from that discussion uh, last night. There's a raccoon on the grape arbor outside the bedroom window, you know, eating his grapes. And it seems like the, the animals, are, you know, do what they do. They they, they don't. Our, you know, from what little we know, they don't seem to sit and debate. It's just the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. You know, the raccoon isn't out there deciding if he should be a vegan or not. He's eating whatever grubs he can dig up out of the lawn, leaving <laughs> little holes all over the lawn, and uh, and eating these grapes. And, and we as humans are saying, where do I fit in here? You know, how do I fit in uh, harmoniously? And it seems like there are all these questions which uh, we really don't seem to have the answers for. You know, the, even food has always, for me, been a quandary. As a kid, I could never figure out how people managed to keep themselves fed. Uh, up in the mountains, you look around, there just didn't seem to be much food around. Like, how does the world feed everybody? 
and and uh, and I still, it's to me, food is a uh, like a pivot point of Zen practice. You know, even to the point of you know, uh, uh, people now are are vegan, and so they're eating vegetables and feeling good about that, but. You know, to me, you peel a carrot, you didn't, you know, at least you killed the chicken before you plucked it. You didn't even think about that with a carrot, the thing's still alive and you're skinning it. And, you know, we have no idea what the whole story is. And, uh, you know, how there's uh, the thing in one of the teachings, uh, within silence, a subject and object merges. You know, so you know uh, how how does that you know how do we establish that level of silence? You know, again and again, it's pointed back: zazen, do zazen, continue to do zazen. But is there any tricks to sort of uh, promote the establishment of that level of stillness? I, I could use those. Well, in stillness, mind and object merge and go beyond realization. This is from Jiju uh, Zamai. Uh, and this this is preceded by, I think, a discussion of um, the nature of, of, of mind and object and so forth. But the, the point being that subject-object, uh, self-other, uh, after all, uh, our our method is consciousness, studying consciousness through consciousness. Uh, in this process, mind, uh, um, mind and object merge in realization. So mind, you might say, is all of the senses, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, all together. Uh, we consider, you know, perception, conception, cognition, realization, awareness, uh, apprehension, apperception, and so forth. Buddhism posits that there is the organ, the eye, the object of the eye, color, form, and so forth, the ear, the, or, the object of the ear is sound, and so forth, the object of the mind is thoughts. All taken all together, seeing, hearing, smelling, seeing, hearing, skip smelling, tasting, seeing, hearing, feeling, thinking, all together you might say comprise the conscious mind and it has an object. When we, fall, when we sleep at night, uh, it's mostly cut off. When we wake up in the morning, then it comes back into play again. When we sit in Zazen, it settles into a kind of constancy so that we undergo a kind of process of samadhi similar to sleep, and yet we're staying conscious, we're staying awake. And so uh, this idea that in uh, samadhi, uh, jiju zamai, self-fulfilling samadhi, upright sitting, mind and object merge and go beyond enlightenment. So this is no longer pursuing anything. We're, we're, at, we're at the end of pursuing it. Enlightenment means like the ox herd looking for, 
you know, looking for the ox. We're, we're pursuing, we're pursuing this teaching. That is enlightenment. It's enlightened, it's enlightenment to understand that something is missing and we're looking for what is missing. But when this uh, uh, comes about that uh, mind and object merge in realization, it goes beyond enlightenment. It's no longer enlightenment. Mind and object have merged in something which uh, we can't call, we can cannot assert that is essentially a unity, but we certainly can say it's not two. Uh, it's mm. no longer subject-object. It's somehow it is it is not exactly one. The one and the many are still here, as Dogen, Dogen points out. But Buddhism leaps beyond or goes beyond this duality. So uh, we should never uh, misunderstand that what, Bud what Dogen is talking about is what actually happens when we do Zazen. What actually happens when we do Zazen is all of this comes true. All of everything changes and all of this comes about and we begin to not only see but hear, feel, taste, touch and so forth, think. We begin to experience this this reality. So Teshin, I don't know if that got clo uh, closer to what you were saying or not. Um, my fundamental question is just how to promote that level of stillness where mind and and object merge. I don't think there's any particular way other than zazen then you can do it that you can do. I think uh, you you cannot promote it. Uh, what you can do. What I have found works for me. Somebody told me once about Reb Anderson. Uh, I don't know Reb Anderson very well, but you, you've all heard of him. And uh, at one time, somebody asked him, he was sitting in full lotus posture or something. Somebody said, how in the hell do you do that? You know, How do you get your legs up there? He said, oh, one day I just looked the other way and pulled it up there. <laughs> so... So I think it's kind of like that. You look the other way. You know, you're sitting in Zazen. Uh, if you get too obsessive, you know, about what you're doing, uh, it probably just gets in your way. So in a sense, you might want to just sort of look the other way for a while. And when you look the other way, uh, this thing sneaks up on you and all of a sudden you find that uh, it's really very different. Uh, you can close your eyes for instance. You can close your eyes. <laughs> James Taylor tumor. You can close your eyes. If you close your eyes then you see there's kind of a veil over your perception of vision at least. And for a moment it allows you to concentrate more on your hearing. Try it. Just close your eyes for a moment here. And your hearing sort of comes up a little bit. And your 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 awareness of your sensation uh, increases a little bit, like in, intensifies a little bit. Right? So when you open your eyes, 
you're kind of distracted a little bit from hearing and, and feeling. So I think it's like that. We have seeing, hearing, feeling, thinking, basically smell and taste kind of fade into feeling quickly. Mm -hmm. If you think of it, you have seeing, hearing, smell, you seeing, hearing, feeling, and thinking. These are the four kind of fundamental things that are going on. Now, if you are distracted by thinking, you can focus your attention on seeing, you can focus your attention on hearing, you can fo focus your attention on sensation, feeling. If you close your eyes, suddenly you kind of take seeing out of the picture a little bit and you have more intense focus on feeling and hearing and maybe your thinking kicks in a little more a little more rapidly a little more intensely so in a way we can kind of uh, choose to focus our attention in different ways uh, while we're sitting in meditation so uh, in answer to your question uh, Jim I'm saying that I'm not sure there's a specific trick or method by which you can do this but you have got to give yourself every break while you're sitting you have got to allow your mind to wander you've got to uh, be able to daydream drift off and recognize you're drifting off and come back you've got to be patient with yourself in terms of uh, pain in your body uh, mm -hmm. if it hurts you know and, and cross your legs cross them the other way a little bit you have got to continue to encourage yourself to, no matter what, not to give up. Uh, investigate thoroughly and practice what you are seeing. Investigate thoroughly and practice what are you hearing. Investigate thoroughly and practice what are you feeling. And and as part of this, of course, thinking is part of it. So. Uh, at some point, it has, it will reach a point of intensity where you can no longer call it hearing in the ordinary sense, or seeing in the ordinary sense, or feeling in the ordinary sense. So it has become something where seeing and hearing and feeling and thinking are no longer separate. It's just one thing. When it comes to that point, this is the real Zazen. Now it is just, I don't know what you'd call it, being. It may still be, you know, you may still sense being in environment, uh, still sense a separation of self and other, but even this eventually uh, drops away. Well, I don't think there's any way that we can make this happen. There are no tricks. It's just understanding that this is the natural process. This is inevitable if we don't quit, if we don't give up. You sit still enough, long enough, everything changes. Well, somebody asked Matsuoka Roshi, how do you know? And he said, oh, sitting mountain feeling. So when you get to the point that you're sitting there like a mountain and it feels like a mountain, no, then this is this is the real zazen. Uh, you know, words fail. Uh, thank you for that.
there's nothing else, I'd like to direct our attention to number nine. Number nine, number nine, number nine. When a person attains realization, it is like the moon's reflection in water. And this goes directly to the point that Jim raised. Page three. Yep. The moon never becomes wet. The water is never disturbed. Although the moon is a vast and great light, it is reflected in a drop of water. The whole moon and even the whole sky are reflected in a drop of dew on a blade of grass. Realization does not destroy the person, as the moon does not make a hole in the water. The person does not obstruct realization, as a drop of dew does not obstruct the moon in the sky. The depth is the same as the height. To investigate the significance of the length and brevity of time, we should consider whether the water is great or small and understand, and understand the size of the moon in the sky. So what I want to focus on here is that when a person retains, attains realization, nothing changes. It doesn't mean that if you you know if you think of yourself as the moon you become wet if you think of yourself as the water the water is not disturbed the relationship of the moon to the water and so forth the relationship of self to other is exactly the same it doesn't change then this whole moon and even the whole sky means that you're the dew and the grass, you know, you're this one person. But it expands and it opens up to include, like in, uh, in uh, Jiju Uzama, he says, when even for a moment you express the Buddha's seal by sitting upright in samadhi, the whole world turns into the Buddha, it becomes the Buddha's seal. The whole world becomes the Buddha's seal and the entire sky turns into enlightenment. Sensei, uh, is it oversimplifying to go back to just when you're chopping wood, chop wood, when you're doing your dishes, just do the dishes yeah, and don't worry too much about the profound? That's daily practice and that is... Uh, that is a profound result after enlightenment. That's, that is way oversimplifying. What we're dealing with here is what happens on the cushion. This goes to the point of Jim's question. What do we do on the cushion to, to increase our Dharma bliss? What do we do on the cushion to renew our magnificence and the awakening of the way? What do we do, and the point is, uh, what he's saying here is that we understand that attaining realization like the moon reflecting in the water the self and the other do not change they do not affect each other 